Now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 8, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. This is God's holy word. Pay close attention. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the land. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter." Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that warns us and that calls us to repentance. And we thank you for the way that you, by your mighty hand, have made yourself known in this world. You have revealed yourself. You have unveiled Jesus Christ to the nations of the world. And Father, we pray that we would not close our eyes, but that we would open them and see that we would not close our ears, but hear. And so we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that we might only hear, but obey and do all the things you command of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a particular conviction, a belief that you may not agree with, and that's fine. Like the Apostle Paul, here I speak and not the Lord. Um, but it seems to me that cars and appliances have a level of consciousness. And here's why I say that. They're able to communicate with each other, and I know this, because they all fall apart at the same time. And if they were simply inanimate objects, then they would break at random times. They would break at different times so that you would have the time and the money and the space to get them repaired one at a time. But that's not how it goes. Cars talk to each other on the driveway at night. I know this. They all conspire together. Uh, one will say to the other, I'm about to start leaking Freon in the middle of summer. What are you going to do? Well, I was thinking about maybe having a lot of electrical problems that nobody can figure out. What are you going to do, teenager's car? Well, I just thought I'd just grenade on the side of the road and leave them <laughs> stranded there. So it's settled. In 24 hours, this family's going to have no transportation whatsoever. I hope they have the Uber app downloaded. That's what, it, that's what happens. That's how it goes. I just know it. Maybe it's confirmation bias, and maybe it just seems that things come in waves like that. There are periods of peace punctuated by flurries of repairs, but it happens enough to make me seem, uh, feel very suspicious about this. Now, that might, might, might not be true, but that does seem to be the way that God works in history. There are long times and long periods and long seasons where things just sort of flow along. Things happen. People come and go off of the national scene. There are births, there are marriages, there are deaths. But there isn't constant upheaval for long periods of time. And then there are short periods of time where all kinds of things, a lot of things all happen at once. There are great revolutions and changes and shakeups. This is not random. God is the author of history. So all of this is by design. And God do does these things for our sanctification. He, he turns up the heat so that we learn patience and wisdom. 
if you just look back to history, think back to Israel's experience in Egypt. For about 400 years, not much changed. There was increasing tyranny and there was increasing oppression toward the end, uh, but, but there were not a lot of changes for those four centuries until around the time that God sends Moses, Pharaoh issues his evil edict that all the baby boys are to be killed. And then Moses grows up to be a man and he makes an attempt to deliver his people. When he's about 40 years old, he stops someone from beating one of his own people, but his own people turn against him. So he goes out to the wilderness for another 40 years. But then when he comes back, in the space of about two months, there's the, the, the plagues, the upheaval of Egypt, the overthrow of Pharaoh, the liberation of the Israelites. All of this happens in a very short period of time. So there's a long period of God allowing history to sort of roll along, a long time of, of history flowing along, punctuated by an intense period of plagues, calamities, and deliverance. Like, like birth pains, they get closer together and more intense the closer we get to the deliverance. Here in the book of Revelation, we've had another silence that is about to be punctuated by a storm of activity. So here we are in, uh, toward the middle, we're, we're getting close to the center of the book where Jesus has taken up the book of the covenant. The seven seals of the book have been broken. Warnings of the curses of covenant breaking are starting to rain down. But these broken seals and what flows out of them, these are all measured cautions against the greater judgments to come. Compared to the trumpets and the bowls to come, the, the seals are all just attention getters. We're just, we're just warming up. And then after the seals are broken, there is a period of silence in God's heavenly sanctuary, about a half an hour of rest, which is then interrupted by the blast of seven trumpets as the contents of the book are heralded out. Now that the book is open, now the contents of the book are heralded out by the trumpets. These seven trumpets start to sound and they call men to repentance. There is an intensification of the judgments that are issuing forth out of the book. For example, back in the seals, only a quarter of the land is affected by war and hunger and death. But now as the trumpets start blowing, a third of the land is out of judgment. Uh, not yet total destruction, but the restraints are being pulled off as we're getting closer to the end. Now, one question that we always have to stop and answer especially if you're uh, jumping into the middle of this study, is when does this all happen and when do these things take place? We always remember the context. No matter what we're reading in the book of Revelation, we gotta flip back to the first chapter and, and understand this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. That's verse one. Verse three, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. So whatever, whatever timeline we put these events on, they have to be near. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, these things will take place within this generation. This generation will not pass until all of these things have taken place. So however we interpret the things and the events that we're reading about, they are near to the original audience. They are very close uh, and, and on the way for the original audience. So these events and these trumpets and the descriptions here are all things that take place between the resurrection of Jesus and the destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem 
in 70 AD. The trumpets that we're about to read summarize the events between those two events leading up to the final destruction of the temple and the old world of the old covenant. The judgments escalate the closer that we get to the year 70. And these are all calls to repent before the end and the final collapse of the old world. So today we're gonna read about the first four trumpets, which all come one right after another. They all come in a flurry. And then there's the fifth and the sixth and the seventh, which were stretched out a little bit more. And we'll take a few more weeks to read those. But before we do that, what is a trumpet? When you open the Bible and you see a trumpet, what are trumpets used for in the Bible? Trumpets were blown to proclaim the coronation of a new king. When Solomon was anointed king, they blew trumpets and they all said, long live King Solomon. Well, trumpets were also used as an alarm system. If enemies are approaching, you mustered the defenses and, and you put everyone on alert with the blast of a trumpet. You hear trumpets blowing, you know something is happening. You know that it's time to prepare. And the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel all talk about blowing the trumpets in alarm because of the coming judgment, the coming day of the Lord. So treat this like an emergency, the prophets say. Blow the trumpets and be faithful or else disaster is coming. Here's another use. Moses used two silver trumpets to summon the congregation together for worship, and those same trumpets were used to array the camp for battle. Isn't that interesting? One of the many intersecting points in the Bible between worship and warfare. The same trumpets that were blown to tell you it's time to go to church are the trumpets that are blown to tell you that it's time to assemble for war. And it's the same trumpets and it's the same, it's the same array. You have been summoned for war today. Uh, we didn't blow any trumpets, but when you came and we had the call to worship, you were summoned for war and you gathered in God's presence and you sang psalms asking for him to defeat his enemies. We've already done that this morning We've, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, but there's this joining between worship and warfare and in Israel, you were summoned for both by the blowing of the trumpets. Trumpets were used in battle itself. The walls of Jericho were uh, brought down at the blast of trumpets. And then Gideon, uh, when, when they defeated the Midianites, they defeated them with lamps and trumpets. You remember they surrounded the enemy with a cloud of Israelites holding lamps and blowing trumpets. They surrounded the enemy with, a, with uh, this, this cloud of people that look like God's glory cloud. It's night, it's dark. There's lamps, there's smoke from the fires of the lamps. You hear trumpets, you think you're surrounded by an army of angels. And in a very real way, they, they symbolized and, and reflected God's heavenly army of angels coming to defeat his enemies. Uh, just a couple of more. Trumpets were blown to announce the year of Jubilee. When you blow the trumpets on the year of Jubilee, the land returns to its original owners. And then trumpets were blown on the first day of the seventh month, which was literally the Feast of Trumpets, which announced that the Day of Atonement was coming, the high day of repentance. Now, take all of that information about trumpets, and all of that is true when you come to the trumpets of the book of Revelation. All of these same things unfold here as these trumpets are blown. The trumpets are announcing to the world the reign of a new king. When the seventh trumpet is blown, it will, they will say the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Trumpets announce the coronation of the new king of the world. Uh, they are an alarm of an impending judgment and the coming day of the Lord. They are a summons for the faithful to gather for worship and to muster as an army. 
The trumpets are blasted out by angels, blasted out of God's glory cloud for the defeat of his enemies, for the tearing down of walls, and for the confusion and the self-destruction of the wicked, just like the Midianites. They're being blown, announcing a new jubilee. The land is returning to its its, uh, original owners. The possession of the world is given back to the saints. The trumpets announce that the greater day of atonement is near. It's high time to fast and repent. So this is just one example of what I mean when I say the book of Revelation is intertextual. You don't open the book of Revelation and say, oh, look, trumpets. Well, I just assume I know what those are all about. No, you, you see a word like trumpet and you think, what are trumpets for? And how are they used throughout the entire Bible? And you go and you study that out and you see how trumpets and you say, oh, all of that's happening here. And, and it is, all of that is, is relevant and part of the context of these trumpets. Now, one more thing to, work, uh, to, to pay attention to as we work through these uh, trumpets, there are also echoes of the days of creation uh, in the events that are heralded by these trumpets. And I'll point these out as we go along. Some of them are loosely connected. Some of them are very clearly and very strongly connected, which, which makes me think that the ones that are loosely connected, I'm just not thinking clearly enough to know how strongly they are uh, connected because of the ones that are very clearly connected. But these judgments that are unrolling here with the blast of these trumpets, these judgments are the last days of the old world and the birth of the new world. God is taking down, with with these judgments, God is taking down the old earth and he's bringing forth a new heavens and a new earth and repositioning everything around Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of revelation. He is the center of the new heavens and the new earth. But first, the old heavens and the old earth have to be folded up as a garment. This is what Psalm 102 and this is what Hebrews 1 refers to. You know this passage. Let me read it again. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not fail. That's what's happening in Revelation 8 and going forward. The old creation is being folded up and everything is being reoriented around Christ who is always the same and will never fail. Well, that's what we're reading about here. As we transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, the old world is folded up. So let's read again the first angel, the first trumpet, and we'll work through these one right after another. Verse seven of chapter eight. The first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Oh, what happens on the first day of creation? The first day of creation is the beginning of the organizing and the ordering of light and darkness, the ordering of the cosmos. The first trumpet is the beginning of the unraveling and the undoing of the old creation. This is a continuation of the work of the angel that we read about last week, who took flaming coals from the altar of incense and flung them to the land. And so here's what happens as the first angel sounds his trumpet, the fire and the coals from the altar are now raining down on the land. There is hail and fire mixed with blood. This is a response to the prayers of the martyrs and of the saints mixed with the incense of the Holy Spirit and the contents of the censer that the angel was holding are flung to the 
land. I have the word earth underlined in my Bible, and I have the word land written out next to it. Some of your translations say earth, but the word is often translated land, referring specifically to the land of promise. And in this trumpet section, the word land is used 17 times. These judgments and these actions are directed not indiscriminately at the whole earth. This, these are not things that are poured out on the world, but they take place in the land of promise. Whenever the word uh, earth is, is used, it's, it's really, we're talking about the land. When the Gentiles are in view, we're talking about the sea, but Israel is the land. Hail and fire and blood are uh, flung to the land. We saw the hail and fire last week that come from the altar. Where does the blood come from? Well, very well could be the blood of the martyrs that are mentioned back in chapter six. Remember back, I'm, I'm gonna keep referring back to the plagues because there are so many parallels between these actions and the events of the plagues. But remember back, the first plague was that the river turned to blood. Egypt was a bloody land. In fact, they turned the river to blood themselves many years before when they killed the Hebrew babies. The plague was just a reminder and a revelation of what they did back then. Remember when you turned the river to blood? I'm gonna turn the river to blood. The blood of the innocent cries out for justice. The blood of the innocent stirs up the avenger of blood to come set things straight. So the Lord Jesus doesn't take the persecution of his beloved lightly. This is not Jesus' own blood that he's about to avenge. This is the blood of his people. As Jesus says, crucify me, I can take it. I will, I will be raised up again on the third day. I can take it. But if you crucify my people, if you crucify my bride, then I will take vengeance. So the land is being reminded of the blood of the prophets and the martyrs, the blood of Stephen, the blood of John the Baptist and others. They're being reminded the hail and fire are also reminiscent of other Egyptian plagues, as, as well as God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's the picture. If fiery hail is falling on the land of promise, it means the land has become like Egypt. It's become like Sodom. And that's exactly what Jerusalem is called two chapters later. In, uh, in, in chapter 11, verse 8, uh, the, the prophet's bodies lie in the street of the great city, the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem now being called? Sodom and Egypt. How do we know that the land has become Sodom and Egypt? Because hail fire is raining on Jerusalem. So we pull it all together. If the land has become like Sodom, you got to get out. If the land has become like Egypt, it's time for an exodus. Get out of there. Jesus warned them back in Matthew 24, when you see the city surrounded by armies, get out of town. Because if you stay, the righteous are gonna suffer right along with the wicked. At the end of verse seven, a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The green trees, the fertile trees, the fruitful trees always represent the faithful man, the faithful of Israel. And they're protected back in chapter seven, verse three. The angel says, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Over in chapter nine, verse four, they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So there's a, there's a, a, a parallel between trees 
the green trees, the fruitful trees, and, and those who are sealed of God and the unfruitful who are not sealed. So the trees are the sealed ones. But here's the, here's the warning. If you hang out in the land where these judgments are ramping up, and there's a possibility of, of severe pain and even physical death. Now, of course, the Christian's ultimate destiny is eternal life. The Christian's ultimate destiny is not wrath, and the church is not going to be destroyed in any judgment. The wicked have only wrath and anguish and tribulation and distress ahead of them. Christians are ultimately spared, but this is another warning to get out of town. Remember, this is being written to the Christians in Asia Minor. Revelation is communicated to them first, and it's a warning to them about what's going on down in Jerusalem and the, the land of promise. There's going to be great suffering. All of this is primarily symbolic, but it's also interesting that the uh, historian Josephus talks about uh, what the land was like leading up to the fall of Jerusalem. Josephus said, all the countryside around the city was stripped bare. The land, which was like a garden, has become a desert. That's what the historian says. Still to this day, if you look at a satellite image of Jerusalem and Israel, you say, this is the land of milk and honey? <laughs> this is the fruitful land? This is a land where you had grape you know, bunches as big as your head? No, it's not, it's not anymore. It's all, it's all brown. It used to be, but it's not anymore. Everything is stripped bare. So that's the, that's the first trumpet. Let's move on to the second, uh, verse eight. Then the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The second day of creation involves the dividing of the waters and the creation of the oceans and the seas. And now the second trumpet is focused on the seas. There's a parallel between the second day of creation and the first trumpet of decreation. We're moving now from land to sea. The land is Israel, but the seas are always associated throughout scripture. The seas are always associated with the Gentile nations. Now something is being thrown out of heaven to the earth, something like a great mountain. What is the image here? This is, uh, this is multi-layered, and, and, if, and if you're fading a little bit, um, maybe I'll pray for some of that caffeine to kick in that you had earlier this morning and focus in right here because this requires us to chain several references together. I believe it's the only way to understand what's going on here. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to be as clear and coherent as possible. Remember, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that, that um, Daniel records and Daniel interprets the dream of the, of the great image that represented all the nations of the world. And what happened, there was a stone cut without hands that comes and it's flung against that image representing all the kingdoms of men and it pulverizes that image. And then that stone cut without hands grows into a mountain. What is that stone cut without hands? Well, that's how God describes the altar to Moses in Exodus 20. After God gives the Ten Commandments, he says, now I want you to get an altar stone, but it's got to be one that's cut without hands. It's not of your doing. It's not of your making. This is the place where you're going to see and know my forgiveness. And I want you to, to remember, this is not your doing. This is my doing. I shape, I shape all of this. So don't, don't cut the stone. Don't chisel it. Don't hammer it. The stone that you use for the altar stone is a stone cut without hands. Well, in Daniel's vision... 
when you hear a stone cut without hands, your first thought is, oh yeah, that's the altar stone that's cut without hands. That's the stone that strikes the mountains and then um, uh, that's the stone that strikes, uh, strikes the nations and then it becomes a mountain, which is consistent because every altar in the Bible is a miniature mountain. It's a tiny replica of a mountain. The temple itself is on a mountain, a high place, and the altar is a miniature high place. It's a replica of Sinai. Mount Sinai was a mountain with fire and smoke at the top. An altar is a rock, a miniature mountain with fire and smoke at the top, smoke of the, of the offering coming off of it. And everywhere Israel set up the tabernacle, it was a renewal of the covenant that was cut at Mount Sinai. So you set up the tabernacle and you set up the stone and there you worship and you see the stone cut without hands and smoke and, and fire coming off of it. And you say, oh yeah, remember Mount Sinai, remember the covenant that was cut there. When Ezekiel describes the heavenly altar, he calls it the mountain of God. So there's all this linkage between altar and mountain in the Old Testament. Okay, so we get to this trumpet, second trumpet, and we see a great mountain burning with fire. What could that be besides the altar? The same, the same stone that Daniel saw is now being hurled with force against the seas, in this picture, the Gentile nations, which destroys both it and them and sets up something new to take its place. When God's people turn to idolatry and paganism, the Lord doesn't refer to the altar anymore as his mountain. He calls it a destroying mountain. In Jeremiah 51, uh, he says, behold, I am, I am against you, O destroying mountain, destroyer of the whole earth. He's talking about his altar, but he's calling it a destroying mountain. I'm against you, declares Yahweh, and I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and will make you a burnt out mountain. What do we see in the second trumpet? We see a burnt out mountain, right? A burning mountain. And then, and then Jeremiah continues, the sea has come up over Babylon. She has been engulfed with its tumultuous waves. Well, the, the crashing of the fiery mountain into the sea in Jeremiah 51 creates a tsunami which wipes out Babylon in Jeremiah. Jeremiah's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about the temple. He's talking about the altar. When the temple ceases to be a source of blessing to the nations, it becomes a source of corruption and death. One more, uh, one more data point, at least one more. Jesus tells the disciples, he says, if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now, now Jesus is not encouraging his people. You know what? I want you to actually walk up to any mountain range and pray imprecatory prayers and see what happens. You know, don't go out to Blowing Rock or go out to Colorado Springs. I mean, you could try, take pictures, see what it's like. And you pray imprecatory prayers against those mountains and ask in faith if God will cast them into the sea. That's not what Jesus is encouraging. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a very specific mountain. He's talking about the mountain of the temple and the altar, the miniature mountain, where now profane sacrifices are being offered by hypocrites. That mountain, the temple mountain, is the source of great persecution for the early church. And Jesus says, if you ask me to throw that mountain into the sea, I will. I will throw that mountain into the sea. And, and here in the second trumpet, that prayer is answered. The prayers went up before the throne of God. They were collected by the angel. They were mixed with incense, burned on the altar, and now hurled back into the land and the sea. And all kinds of purposes get worked out. 
Well, okay, the seas, what's that all about? The waters are repeatedly, as I said, repeatedly associated with Gentile nations throughout the symbolism of the Old Testament. The Hebrews were not a seafaring people. Solomon sent out some boats. Uh, one prophet got on a boat going the wrong direction. Other than that, there are not a lot of boats in the Old Testament, right? Not a lot of people go, but, but in the prophets, the Gentile nations, the Gentile kingdoms, they're the ones who take great ships on the sea, right? The Gentile nations are pictured as the monsters of the sea in Daniel. When Jonah is swallowed by a whale, it's a foreshadowing of Israel being swallowed up by Assyria. So the Old Testament is all about the land and it's all about things that happen on the land, but there's a shift, there's a shift in focus from the Old Covenant to the New. In the Old Covenant, we have shepherds. In the new covenant, when Jesus comes, we've got fishermen, right? Abraham goes around building wells on the land, and that's a really big deal. But Jesus gets on a boat, and he goes back and forth across the sea. And then the apostle Paul gets on a boat, and he goes even further out to sea, crossing the sea back and forth. The kingdom and the promises are extended to the seas now, uh, extended to the nations across the seas in the new covenant. So we're not landlocked anymore. So pulling it all together... We're not looking through the pages of history and we're not looking into the future to see when a literal mountain is thrown into the sea. Though volcanoes could kind of resemble this and if you wanna say there's some kind of, there was volcanic activity and maybe that was a picture of this. Remember, Revelation is communicated in the language of symbol. Jesus signified these things. This is the language of symbol. So the symbol is primary. Uh, so the image of the second trumpet is something like this. Just as Daniel's altar stone pulverized the nations and grew into a mountain to cover the whole earth, so now the dissolution of the temple and the growth of Christ's kingdom take place in the arena of the Gentile nations. The altar is hurled into the sea. It is transformed. And with it, the whole kingdom project is hurled into the sea of nations. The response of the Gentile nations is initially and continually bloodshed. There's persecution on the, there's blood in the water when this happens. There's confusion and warfare among the nations. But as the fiery altar stone hits the waters, it grows into a mountain if you bring in what Daniel says. This, this is all symbolic shorthand. The temple is coming down on AD 70. Jesus said it's coming down. Not one stone is gonna be left on the, on the other. Everything's coming down. The gospel is going to the Gentiles. The result at first is a sea of blood. They're gonna be martyrs as Gentiles try to stamp out the church, but the fish and the ships are destroyed when they spill martyrs' blood. Did you ever take an English literature course where your uh, teacher went on for an hour about some dead mule in a William Faulkner novel? Did you ever take a class like that and you thought, he's crazy? And that's the same look you have on your eyes and on your face now. <laughs> but I wish I listened more back in English. <laughs> and uh, and I, I don't know how else to pull this together, but when you see a burning mountain, where do we see burning mountains? We gotta go find them. We gotta find out and, and put this all together um, as best we can. So continuing, um, and these next two are not gonna take as long. Verse, uh, verse 10, third angel. Third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and, and a, it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Well, on the third day of creation, the dry land appears, and it's separated by the waters. And on the third trumpet, 
we're back on the land, which is watered by rivers and springs. When you hear rivers and springs, that takes you back to the Garden of Eden. Eden was a well-watered land. Four rivers flowed out of the Garden of Eden to the whole world. Eden was to be the head or source of blessing for the whole world to water the earth. Eden was the first sanctuary of worship. And, and when later sanctuaries were built, this, this watering aspect was reflected. At the tabernacle, there was a laver of cleansing. When Solomon built his temple, there were 10 water chariots showing a motion of water flowing out from the temple to the whole world. When Ezekiel gives us his vision of the heavenly temple, a river flows out of the temple and, and its waters are for the healing of the world. So every time we see a sanctuary, there's water and there's water flowing out of it. And there's water flowing to the whole world. And when we're talking about rivers and springs, we recall the sanctuary and the role of worship at the sanctuary in the healing and the feeding and the cleansing and the refreshing of the nations. Except now we see water flowing out. Water's coming out of the springs and rivers. Water is coming out of the sanctuary and it's cursed. It's bitter. It's become deadly. It's, it's corrupted with wormwood, which is the name of a bitter root mentioned throughout the Old Testament. The wormwood was thought to have some medicinal properties, but it was extremely unpleasant. And in several places, wormwood is used to describe the bitterness of slavery and idolatry. Remember, Jesus was offered sour wine mixed with wormwood or gall on the cross. It's a sour and bitter thing. And now because of Israel's idolatry and rejection of Jesus, the truth isn't flowing out in the springs and rivers, but poison. Everything that God has given Israel for the promotion of life has been used to kill. The life-giving law is a crushing burden. The cleansing rituals pollute the land. The sweet-smelling aroma of their sacrifices now smell putrid to God. The house of prayer for all nations has become a very provincial, sectarian den of extremists and revolutionaries. Their synagogues, which are places of instruction for the saints, have become inhabitations of demons. And people thirsting for the refreshing water of the truth are poisoned by the water that flows out of the temple." See, judgment is just a revelation of reality. The judgment is poison is flowing out of you. And here's the judgment. Yeah, it is. It's all poison. The next trumpet, verse uh, 12. The fourth trumpet, the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. On the fourth day of creation, God created sun, moon, and stars. And with the fourth trumpet, What's affected? Sun, moon, and stars. At creation, we get sun, moon, and stars. At decreation, now these things are darkened. Heavenly bodies in prophetic symbolism in the Bible, heavenly bodies always have to do with earthly rulers. As sun, moon, and stars govern the day and night and the seasons, so kings and emperors and governors rule. And so whenever you see stars falling in prophetic literature, you know that means the kingdoms are collapsing. Rulers are dying. The lights are going out for those cultures and those societies. That's the symbolic uh, uh, picture. There's literal fulfillment. Between the resurrection of Jesus and the collapse of Jerusalem, there was constant upheaval when it came to the succession of rulers as one after another was assassinated or died under extraordinary circumstances. During this period of time, from the resurrection to AD 70, Rome couldn't keep a Caesar as Gaius, 
Claudius, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellus, they all died by murder or by their own hand. And in Jerusalem, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa, most of the Herodian princes, along with most of the high priests of Jerusalem, all die in disgrace or in exile or at the hands of violent men. These are all suns that are being put out. These are all stars that fall. These are all moons that turn to blood. So there are connections here between the first four days of creation and the first four trumpets of decreation. The last three days of the creation week all have blessings attached to them. Back in Genesis 1, the, the first four days of creation are God creating the world. The last three days of creation are God blessing and filling the world. So on day five, God blesses the swarms of fish and he says, be fruitful and multiply. On day six, God creates the land animals and he creates man and he blesses them and he says, be fruitful and multiply. On day seven, he blesses the Sabbath day and makes it holy. Day five, day six, day seven. What do we have? Blessing, blessing, blessing. What do we get on the last three trumpets of decreation? Verse 13, and I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. The last three trumpets of decreation are doom and dread and curses. We got blessing on the last three days of creation. We got doom and curse, curses on the last three days of, of decreation, the last three trumpets. Trumpet five talks about swarming creatures that were blessed on day five of creation, but now they're gonna bring a curse. Trumpet six shows that mankind who was blessed on day six of creation, man is going to be cursed. With trumpet seven, the Sabbath day of the Lord that was blessed is now gonna be the day of, of destruction. It's gonna take us a couple of weeks to work through these, but I wanna tie them together to the creation week up front. Now, let me wrap this up with this thought. All of these judgments are really just affirmations of what is already happening. That's how God's judgments work. God is not a mean boy pulling the wings off of flies and stomping on anthills. God is not an angry old man who just likes to cause turmoil, who just likes to stir things up and see what happens. That's not it at all. God is love. God is always good. God is always righteous and just. And judgment in many ways is just confirming for you what you've already embraced. It's just giving more and more of what you love until you hate it and you call out for salvation from your own lusts and you call out for deliverance from the hell that you have created. Judgment is giving us more and more and more of what we love. Judgment reveals the truth of things. Judgment uncovers reality. Judgment itself is a revelation. Judgment is an unveiling. Let's go back to the plagues of Egypt quickly, one more time. Pharaoh filled the Nile River with the bodies of Hebrew babies. The Nile was already a river of blood. The first plague just showed what was already true. Yes, the river is a river of blood. Egypt was infested with idols, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And then they had plagues of lice and, and frogs and, and locusts that show, yeah, we're infested all right. We're infested with idolatry. Despite worshiping the sun god, Egypt was in total darkness. They were wandering in deep, impenetrable darkness. And so God just confirmed that by sending and covering the darkness, uh, the, the land with darkness. Pharaoh was covenantally impotent. Pharaoh was incapable of raising up godly seed before he lost his firstborn son. All the plug, plagues 
All the plagues, all the judgments are confirmations of what is already true. And so they are in the trumpets. Land is already defiled. The land is defiled with the blood of the prophets. The altar has not been a blessing to the Gentiles, but it's been a curse. The water flowing out of the temple is poison and their leaders are all falling stars and darkened stuns and bloody moons. That's what apocalypse is. An apocalypse is literally an unveiling, a revealing. And I don't think that I'm being too dramatic when I say that we're living through an unveiling period of history. We're living through one of these intensified periods of history today where a lot is happening all at once. And we're going through our own apocalypse. So what is being exposed? Well, the church has not become weak and faithless. She hasn't become fearful through this time. It's just being revealed what's already true. The church has very, for a very long time cared more about what men think than what God requires. You want to start a church where you need to go poll your neighborhood about what kind of music they like. What, what kind of things do they enjoy doing? And that's what you build your church around. You care more about what men think than about what God says. And that's been the truth for a very long time. That's just being revealed right now. That's just being shown. Our magistrates have not become oppressive and tyrannical overnight. They already were. They've just had their opportunity to shine. Judgment is an unveiling. The fatherless and irrational generation, the, the illiterate, uneducated, pornography-addicted generation of young people, they didn't become violent and hateful when they were isolated and told they were non-essential. But these events revealed what they already were, emotional, angry children. And, and we're just getting more of what we want. You don't want to obey God's laws. You don't want to take it seriously. You think his precepts are onerous. And, and, and you think that God's requirements don't let you be who you were made to be and don't let you be free. Okay, that's fine. Here's more and more and more and more of it. It's like when God gave Israel quail in the wilderness until it came out their nose. That's literally, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Until it came out their nose. We're getting more and more and more and more of what we crave and what we love until it comes out our nose. Okay, you want this? Watch. While your society collapses into absolute instability and disorder, you just get more of what you crave. You don't want to fulfill your obligations as husbands and wives. You don't want to honor your parents. You don't want to take worship seriously. Well, take it. Go ahead. Here you go. This is, this is what you want. Now, when we look at God's judgments this way, we're looking into a mirror and we see who we are, what we need to repent of and what we need to amend. I don't expect unbelievers to do this. They don't care and they're blind. It's not for them, it's for us. It's it, the church, when I criticize the church, I'm saying the church is us. When I criticize our nation and society, that's us, that's we, that's me, that's you. We lead the world in repentance and we cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, you are covered by his work and you are preserved from judgment ultimately, but you must repent. This is the audience for Revelation. The churches in Asia, watch what's happening in Israel and repent. Watch what's about to go down in Jerusalem and repent. Don't let this come to you. Knowing that if we cling to Jesus, we are saved from judgment. God's judgment has already been satisfied at the cross. And all those who are in Jesus, all those who confess and believe are covered. Jesus has been crushed so that you don't have to be. Jesus has been separated from God's uh, presence and God's communion so that you don't have to be. Jesus has borne the penalty of a covenant breaker. Even though he didn't deserve it, he bore it so that you don't have to be. Jesus drank the wormwood so that you don't have to. 
You don't have to drink judgment. It's already been consumed for you. The only refuge from judgment is Jesus. That was the message to these first century Christians. And that's the same message for us. Open your eyes, look at the judgment, watch the apocalypse, open your eyes and repent. Put away your sins and cling to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that indeed you would open our eyes and that you would strike us with the severity of our own sins, that you would cause us to hate our sins and that we would run to you for mercy. I pray that you would spare us, that you would deliver us through the day of judgment. Indeed, uh, we also pray for our society. We pray for our culture, that you would save us, save our nation and turn our hearts to you in repentance. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.